When I look at a picture of planet Earth taken from space, I don't see a big blue marble or a giant multicolored beach ball. I see a giant pizza with blue cheese and garlic cream sauce. And all the living creatures are trying to get their slice of the pie. I'm Steve Fisher, and this is Life Slices. One of the masters of science fiction was Ray Bradbury. He called his craft the art of the possible, never the impossible. Gary Benger, writer, philosopher, and technologist, knows something about what is possible and what is not, and touches on both in his novel Unfettered Journey. He's my guest today on Life Slices. Welcome, Gary Benger, to Life Slices. You wrote a book called Unfettered Journey. How did that come about? After I finished a career in tech, I went into passion projects. I went back to school. I backfilled an astrophysics degree. I then went on and backfilled a philosophy undergraduate. And then I pursued a master's in philosophy, and I finished that with a thesis on the philosophy of mind. So I spent 10, 20 years now thinking about these issues of consciousness and, and you know, what is consciousness? As I spent a lot of time thinking about that, I had some ideas and I, I actually wrote a series of several papers on this. And there's something called the Unfettered Journey Appendices, which is actually a philosophically rigorous group of papers. But the novel, Unfettered Journey, is to introduce some of these ideas in a more approachable way. Your main protagonist is a Joe Dankensmith, who's an artificial intelligence scientist, and he wants to bring true consciousness to robots, which I found a, an interesting idea considering most of mankind hasn't gotten there yet. So <laughs> yes. <laughs> if it's something we will ever bring to, to robots, especially depending on humans to do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's and that's how it opens. And 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 you alluded. This is a lot more. I mean, this is uh, this is um, a, an action adventure book. It's a love story. It is very much a cross genre book, and it and it does use those characters in that sort of storyline in the near future, um, 140 years in the future to be precise, in the year 2161. So it does that to actually sort of explore some of these ideas of what our human consciousness. If you ask can you make robots conscious, then you have to ask, well, what is consciousness itself? And those are a hard problems. And so, yes, that's, that's kind of why I, I kind of back into the topic that way with robots. And, and let, let me back up a minute. I think part of it is, as I said, I have a hard science view of the future. And in terms of science fiction and fantasy, it sort of went from the old masters, Asimov and Huxley, where they really worried about the hard science. You know, they want to get that right. And, and we've kind of morphed into, you know, dragons and faster than light spaceships and lots of things that actually are not scientific. So, and, and why is that? I think partly because it's so darn hard to predict the future accurately, because uh, if you wrote a book um, in 2005, you probably missed the iPhone. And if you did, your stories are all wrong. <laughs> so it's really hard to predict the future. Given my background in, in tech, I tried very hard to take a whole lot of technology and run it forward in a likely scenario. Because I think that's really important for us as humankind, as a human global society, to know what the right things to look at are so that we can better know what we, our challenges will be. And then we can build the future that we really want to have. <laughs> That's an interesting point because so much of science fiction, especially when we look back, going even going back to H.G. Wells and Jules Verne, things that predicted 
items and technology that we find commonplace today. Is science fiction actually predicting our future or actually guiding our future? Well, I, unfortunately, I'm a, I'm a naysayer. I think that lots of it is just escapist, but it should be. I hope it gives us a, a lens on what the future might be, unfortunately. And well, science fiction has traditionally also been a lens on the time in which it's written. Asimov wrote the Foundation series, and many say that was about World War II and Hitler. But yes, it does predict the future. Ray Bradbury predicted the geosynchronous satellites, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's good to think about what the, what is likely, and then maybe to ask yourself further questions, what parts of that don't we want to happen? <laughs> so in my book, actually, I was very pleased. There's a, there was a review from She's Single Magazine, and, and the uh, reviewers said that it's eerily authentic. That is one of the potential, I don't want to call it a drawback, but one of the features of science fiction is that it does reflect our life, our times, and the question towards the future. Here's my art science view as a at the top level. I think that this next century will be guided by two main technology changes. The first is bioscience and the second is AI and robotics and they're both going to be tremendously important to change human life. In Unfettered Journey, I focus on AI and robotics. And the reason is, even though I think lives will be transformed, I, I don't quite think we're going to live forever. In 140 years, we will not have figured out that magic elixir, but we're going to have longer lives and they're going to be disease-free. We're clearly going to, I think we're clearly going to cure cancer and we'll be great, but we won't notice it as much because if you lasted another 30 years, say, on average, well, that would be normal. So, so, so it wouldn't be in your face in your life as much as the fact that you'll have, you know, robots walking around. And I think that also will happen. So l- let me talk about that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, again, a little bit of a contrarian. Um, you know, a lot of folks, they think about robots. There's a, there was a study that says by 2050, 70% of the jobs will be all automated. It was some major global uh, consulting firm. You know, I don't think that's happening. The, the other thing is, you know, suddenly they'll become super intelligent and it'll be Skynet and it'll be the Terminator series and they're all going to take over the world and kill us all. So, you know, again, that's silly. So what's likely? I think that robots will develop. Well, wait a minute. Yeah. You're saying that that's all Terminator stuff is silly. Yes. You have just destroyed everybody who was hoping for another sequel. <laughs> but but it, that's part of this dystopian some people like the future in a very dystopian way and i think it's going to be a combination of some things that feel dystopian and some that feel utopian but l- let's think about that robots i think it's going to be more like the automobile it took sure henry ford had the model d in 1910 but it took a while to get from that to our modern car you know you need windshield wipers you need automatic starters you need electrical systems you need roads you need a legal infrastructure to deal with what happens when these machines kill people. And, and so all of that takes a long time. And so that's my view is that it will develop, we'll get the sensors, we'll get things right. For a long time, quite honestly, I think that robots will be annoying. They won't quite do what we want them to do. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a whole subreddit on Reddit that deals with like stupid robots. <laughs> Oh. I don't know if I'm happy about that because I was kind of uh, counting on my second wife being a robot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Given that I just said that about robots, here's the point, though. I mean, if you've seen like the Boston dynamic robot dog and stuff, I mean, it looks like it's going to happen tomorrow. Don't we all agree that eventually it will get there? I mean, we can see it's, it's, right. it's an engineering problem. So as I said, 140 years in the future, I think we'll be there. Now, let's gen- move from that to the economics effect. 
as robots become more and more proficient, by the way, I think they're going to walk around and look like us. I mean, look our size, our size, because we've got trillions of dollars of infrastructure built for human size, and you know, so they probably will make the standard robots kind of our size. So, in fact, my book, I have like two versions: um, a mechanic, uh, like an industrial one, and one that walks around and talks to us, called a Pippa bot that you know you right. communicate with. Now, will we ever get to the cross? You talked about the robotics and then biosciences. Will we ever get a crossover? Ah, okay. And that's another, that's another trope in sci-fi, right? Is that we'll all become cyborgs or something. Yeah. Okay. But that ignores the uh, fundamental bit of biology. You know, we've had a million years for us to evolve, right? I mean, we were out there getting chased by the big cats and all that. The human body is ridiculously attuned, yet our minds work at chemical speeds. There's a ridiculous gap between our brain speed and even current chips, and it's going to get worse and worse with some continuation of Moore's law. So how do you get through that interface, right? Your brain and mine, we have the largest part of our brain is called V1. It's on the back of our head, and it's the size of a whole cat's brain. That portion of our brain is just dedicated to vision. That's how yours might be. I think mine is pea sized. <laughs> but those are our big senses, you know, audio and visual. And so to to try to get the interface to work, it's hard. I mean, in my book, I've got here's where, and again, this is where it's maybe eerily authentic. I imagine you have this little chip inserted behind your ear, right? And sort of that's your iPhone <laughs> embedded. Okay. And it's connected to a little thing that's embedded in your cornea that can project. And this thing is called a nest, a neural to external system transmitter. It's sort of you can connect to the cloud and, and you can talk to it. And you can just say, where's the nearest pizza, pizza joint? And what it does is it paints a little map on your corneal imp- implant. And you can just kind of follow the map, walk around and find the place. We can imagine that, right? I mean, that's that's like the next just implanted phone, and it's like Google Glass 10.0 or something. Well, people are getting implants already, aren't they? If, if nothing yes. else, for security reasons. Yeah, yeah. And, and in fact, uh, you know, Elon Musk a few months ago uh, demonstrated the Neuralink, right? And it's about the, uh, something about the size of a nickel embedded into your brain. And the idea they have little connectors that will kind of directly tie into the brain. Well, again, that's really slow. It's going to be really hard to make that work. And in, in my book... In 140 years, you know, I don't think that's going to be so overwhelming. I, you know, what I have is the character Joe gets on an airplane. Traditional is, you know, walk around, you talk to your device quietly. But when you get on some public place like that, well, then you, the, it's rude to talk out loud to your device. So you go back to your elementary school when you learned 100 keywords and you think the words carefully and then it does pick these up and you can communicate with the cloud in a rough way. But, you know, it's not very good because because that interface between human and computer is so lousy with that um, bottleneck well i mean there are enough people complaining about alexa listening to everything we do in our homes oh see she just responded uh (laughs) (laughs) so how would they feel if that if that chip was in your head and you can never get away well then privacy concerns are a very big issue right and so that's one of the themes in the book as i said there's a there's a sort of a social justice theme and and there's issues there's hackers trying to avoid some really controlling government all that so i think those are real issues that we really have focus on how do you do that so okay but let me get back to robots one more time because i do want to get use that to get to the social justice theme which is yeah, one please. of the central ones so as we have we agree that robots will continue to get better and better. There's economic reasons for that. And then think, as robots finally get, what happens to jobs? There's two, two things. What happens to jobs? I attended a workshop at the Santa Fe Institute about two years ago 
called AI and the Barrier to Meaning, where we had some of the major leaders in the field gathered together to discuss that and you know how long it will take and all that sort of thing. They were actually fairly, uh, they were fairly cynical. They thought that it's a little bit of a overblown at the moment. It's just, it's just really hard. But one presenter talked about jobs and he had this topology map with, you know, hills and valleys. And as he said, think of this as the landscape of jobs and the water is rising, subsuming jobs. You can imagine that happening as more and more jobs go away. Well, what's at the top of the hills, right? Well, you know, one of them might be your job, Steve. You know, it's really hard to automate that, right? Really hard. <laughs> hey, I'm at retirement age. They're welcome to it. <laughs> <laughs> but another one I suggest is roofer. Because it's really hard to climb up on a roof with a bunch of sing- shingles and tack in place. You know, it's really hard to automate. Roofers will be making one, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year, but then eventually we will get our robot good enough to replace them. And that's when they're walking around among us. And that's when those jobs are all finally gone. So now think about this. And again, I say 140 years. Okay, some, some, but it'll happen. So now when that happens. The robots will be mining the metals. They'll be smelting the steel. They'll be making the factory. They'll be making the factories that make the robots. And when robots build robots, for the first time in human civilized history, our labor is divorced from the output. Because right now we tend to think, what's the what's the productivity per labor hour? And of course, if there's more productivity per labor hour, then that means there's more stuff on average per person, and we all have more stuff, at least if it was all more or less equitably divided. If that goes away as a metric, you, Steve, could have 20 robots just doing stuff for you. Really? So there, yeah, so there's but no when, limit. When is that? Because I, <laughs> I can use that right now. <laughs> oh, darn, 140 years. Also finance guy. So I, you know, my background. So I actually ran the model forward for the global GDP and the US GDP. And if you just take the rate of growth that's been typical without robots, one to four or five percent, by 2060, 20, by 2160, 140 years, we'll have 10 to 20 times as much stuff per person as we have today. So the end game is we'll have lots of stuff, but we'll have no jobs, or at least none of the jobs that we have today. I mean, we'll have creative jobs, we'll have other jobs, but we won't have the kind of jobs we have today. Think about that. How do we get from where we are today to what I suggest is highly likely, almost inevitable. We have lots of stuff, robots around us, and not those kind of jobs that we usually have. You know, how do we get there? We want to get there. <laughs> well, it's sort of utopian. I mean, you have all the stuff you need, right? Food, clothing, shelter, you got lots of stuff. And you, I mean, you think about it. And in fact, uh, think about that world. The Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks, they have all this data on people. Okay, that's really bad in many ways, right? But there is a good thing. Capitalism has supply and demand. Um, There's a demand for some widget, and then the factories make it, and the price goes up until they make enough of them, et cetera, and then equalizes out. There's a delay in that because people have to want the stuff, and the price has to move up. But if you have all that data, and if it was if it was anonymized and well-organized and stuff, it would tell us as a society what we want and what we might want next. I mean, when I was at eBay... I actually talked about this in some financial conferences. I said, think about that. eBay knows not only who won the bid, but the other 10 people who didn't win and how much they were willing to pay. Wow. And so, and you also know the demand then. So if you have all that data, you tell you the demand. So you could, as the algorithms, the AIs get better, be able to predict the demand and have that information replace our economic system. 
And we would have the stuff well organized as opposed to communism, which is a horrible thing because it doesn't, it did such a horrible job of actually answering people's needs, what they really wanted. But this would be a system that would be arguably better than our market capitalism because the market is in that information. When we talked a little bit before we started recording, actually, about when jobs are taken, the majority of jobs are taken by the robots. I know some, some politicians have already put forth the idea of universal basic income. Will that ever be a reality? I mean, is that tangible? One of the sort of conceits for conflict in my book, Unfettered Journey, is the following. As this happened, and there were disruptions, there were disruptions in the next 140 years. There's the climate wars, as some parts of the world had not enough resources, like arable land and water. Despite those disruptions, we got past that. With all the robots and the jobs going away, the U.S. being so based on property rights, and people didn't have jobs, and so the natural uh, equilibrium point then is not that some people own all the robot factories. Because then you have some people that are gazillionaires and you have everyone else has nothing. The stable point is, is that they decide to nationalize the robot factory. So everyone universally owns them. Mm-hmm. But since the U.S. is so much into property rights, the quid pro quo for that giving up of the ownership is that they introduce something called the Levels Act. And it says everyone has a level from level one through level 99 at the bottom. And it's supposedly based on merit and you can move up and down based upon your own merit. And so that's how you keep track. And, and there's some other things that are going on with those. But supposedly they're built into the Levels Act. We do, but not officially. I, they are kind of built in. Some people think of the future in a very utopian way. I'm suggesting that, yes, it's the future will seem a little bit strange. You know, I just mentioned this thing called a nest that's in your, in, you know, a chip in your head and, and there's robots walking around. But again, you could instantly easily imagine that that kind is normal. Our social interactions among people will still be fundamental to who we are, and that won't change. And so how do we, as humankind, deal with our relationships with one another, deal with our fundamental, animalistic, evolved competitiveness? How do we deal with those aspects of our humanity? I think they'll still be around. I I think as long as we're double masked, we're okay. (laughs) I think we're losing our humanity now everyone having to socially distance themselves from other people. <laughs> and so you asked about the you know, guaranteed income. Um, yeah, sort of basically that is a view of the future in this model. And there are sort of in- implications that other countries have done a better job of being more egalitarian in their societies than the U.S., which again has these level attacks that are more explicit. So, so that's part of the conflict in the book is that Joe, as you mentioned, meets a mysterious woman who's in a fight for social justice to change that order. So there will even be that in the future. Yeah. I mean, I started thinking about this this particular idea many years ago, even before Black Lives Matter and then the George Floyd, the horrible murder last year and, and all that. But so it's unfortunately, it's very uh, timely to, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't think these issues are easily fixed. And so I think we're going to be grappling with them for a while. That also seems to be a main element in science fiction is the constant fight for social justice in one way or another, going all the way back to H.G. Wells and going back, but 1984 with George Orwell. 
Yeah, it's well, I think it's a good fight to continue, right? Because we've still got lots of progress that we need to make. Yeah. I mean, that that's a big question is, will man ever evolve to a point where we have full consciousness? Back up the overall near future, well, new for 140 years, near future that I'm imagining. It's a very hard science view. In 140 years, what I imagine is there is a, uh, a space station circling the moon whose focus is on sending probes to exoplanets. But humanity, even in that time, has not left our solar system. We've got bases on the Mars. We've got some of the asteroids. We've got a number of bases on the moon, et cetera. But it will be hard to move a large number of people into space. It's it's a tough life if you chose that. So I'm sort of a little naysayer on all this Star Trek kind of Star Wars views. It's it's not going to, we're going to be disappointed in some ways. In fact, here, here's a thought. Here's a thought. If you look at our, our, our telescopes that we're now putting in space and what they're finding in terms of exoplanets, I suggest this. By the year 2050, for sure, we will know enough about our near solar system other stars to know which exoplanet are close. You know, so what our closest star is Proxima Centauri, about 4.3 light years. There's an answer in by 2050. The answer is either, yes, there's maybe two or three or four or one within re- 10 light years, some reasonable distance. Or the answer is there isn't. And if there isn't, then that suggests that humankind getting to those places may be put off for hundreds of thousands of years, which is really sad. Well, it is, especially if you're a Star Trek fan. It was my whole childhood. Uh, Yeah, I know. It's it's, so my astrophysicist friends at uh, at UC Berkeley, you know, it's like no, Einstein's equation. The science is clear. It takes a ridiculous amount of energy to to accelerate any amount of mass to anywhere near like a tenth of the light light or something. So it's not going to be as glorious as we imagine in our future. So you know, what's science fiction going to look like in 2161? It's like. Oh, those poor guys back there in 2020, they were so hopeful, but didn't believe the science was as constrained as it really is. But Disney will still be putting out Star Wars sequels. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm I'm just sure of it. Now, will we ever see true driverless cars? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think so. Well, in, in 2161, sure. You know, you just, yeah, that's how Joe gets around. He just kind of uses his nest. He walks downstairs, the car's waiting, he hops in, it takes him where he's supposed to go, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have that stuff. The robots will be walking around among us and they'll be annoying us by telling us what the weather's like, stuff that we really don't want to hear about. <laughs> just be quiet a moment. And yeah, and I think we'll have to worry about the cacophony of social media and everything, whatever that is. How, how do you get that out of your head? Um, one of the things that happens is my book is, in the, and I, uh, without spoilers, but there's a section of my book where it asks the question, what would you do without technology? Could you go back to a primitive existence with hunting your own food, growing your own grain? Could you do that? And what would that look like? Well, I don't think we can. I mean, just knowing what it's like when we have a blackout, our, <laughs> our total reliance on everything technological is dashed like uh uh-oh how do i boil water my stove won't won't come on (laughs) it's like i i I can't make my tv dinner with microwave won't work that asks the question you know if there is this american ethos of the cowboy and the lone individual takes care of himself we have this complex society that i think a lot of people struggle with and many even today wish for something simple and, you know, maybe that's the basis of some of the rancor that we have. People want something simpler. If you truly ask yourself the question, would you really like that? Then 
maybe the answer is no. And if that's true, then you then you have to realize that you will make a trade-off. And the trade-off is, is that we, if we like the things that come with modern society, then that comes with complexity and that comes with more collaborative effort. You talk about being able to go to these simpler times. Then I, I immediately thought of Westworld and we're right back to the robot. They're <laughs> everywhere, even in the, in the old days. Unfettered Journey is a very much a cross-genre novel. It covers a lot of territory. And at highest level, then in this future world, how do we find purpose? I, I did see one review that likened it to Blade Runner. How do you feel about that comparison? Uh, there is, the, what I mentioned, the being driven off to a place where you have to survive or else. Yeah, there's a little bit of that going on. And, that, and that's the Hunger Games uh, illusion, too. Yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of that. So there's there's those things to bring up some interesting ideas. And, and hopefully, you know, my readers will enjoy the thought process of going through that. So do you see if a... A positive future, or are you more cynical about our future? I see a positive future. I, I'm, I, I think this technology will continue to give us more stuff. You know, we start from our basic human evolved base of, from apes. We're up from apes, right? We're risen ape. What was it? Uh, life not so long ago was nasty, <laughs> brutish, and short. <laughs> and so it's gotten better. And so when it's better, we can get further away from the basis of that doggy uh, dog world. And we can you know, embrace maybe our better angels. You know, Steven Pinker talks about uh, in his book about the better angels of our nature and the fact that humanity as a, as a whole has gotten significantly less violent. And so if we're not fighting over stuff, that might make us less violent, less competitive, less more altruistic, more more compassionate. That would yeah. be nice. All I know is that whenever it comes to a time for a gift and my kids ask me what I want, that's usually some kind of smart device. And they just go, oh, dad, you and your toys. Well, they, so, could, they, they, could, they could go to Scotch next, right? I think you get your... I will make sure I change my Christmas list right after we stop recording. Okay, you're going to like, and you're going to like my character, Joe, because yeah, he's, he's a fan like you. Now, one of the things you, you mentioned earlier when talking about the jobs that robots will take over, and, and you said usually white collar is thought of as fairly safe, but then I keep seeing all these ads for pro a software that does voiceover, that's human sounding, or that writes copy, that's human yes. sounding. That stuff's kind of scary. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I think it's true that many... There's already AIs are used heavily in sports uh, information. So for example, the box scores, all this stuff for about uh, baseball, AIs write those. They know how to write that, that it sounds like a normal baseball story. So will we ever see in, in the future robots taking the place of athletes? We've seen that in, like in Twilight Zone, did a story, robot boxers, and another one with robot baseball players, and humans weren't allowed to participate because it was all a robot domain. Okay. Well, I've got, I've got a little place on sports in there in the sense of, you know, what will be those boards? And, you know, there's, in fact, there's, uh, without too much of a spoiler, there's, so some of the folks whose jobs disappear. And so the last kind of working guy activity was in certain industrial settings where you had something like an exoskeleton uh, robot. It helped you lift things and that sort of thing. So you had these exoskeleton robots that you, people walked around in. 
And then even those jobs went away when we had these industrial robots called a mecha, which are you know, three meters tall and they have four legs. And so anyway, what happens is the folks who no longer have these jobs, they basically do something like uh, sumo wrestling, the human wearing one of these exoskeletons against the mechas. That's 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 an entertainment. We're course, seeing real exoskeletons now being used to help people with disability. Yes, yes, exactly. So you know, again, those are going to happen. I mean, we can see that they're going to they're using them in the military. The military is heavily invested in how do we make more super soldiers. I know one of the things that that I I think about a lot is Alzheimer's, having it in the family. Will we ever see a point where chip will be able to be inserted into our brains to keep our memories going. Yeah. And I said, as I said, I have about a half a dozen years of my experience in biosciences. So, and I think that there'll be wonderful effects of that. I have, I, I only have like two devices that are sort of, in, that changed the human in a particular way. The second one is called the MedFlow. So imagine this device that's inserted sort of at you, on your hip under the skin. And what it does is it monitors your health, dispenses chemical. So it microdoses your caffeine for the day, right? <laughs> it gives you your anti-aging little chemicals. You know, it does all that stuff automatically. And so it's always monitoring your system and we just have that in our body, right? And so it's, what will happen to Starbucks? <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> I, okay, that's, a, uh, I, after I made this concept up because again this is thinking i talked to some of my uh, bioscience friends at some of the institutes here that are into anti-aging but then i ran into a person and they are an extreme diabetic and in fact this gentleman had to wear a device continuously monitoring his his levels right. and it would microdose based upon the reading so yes they're already making those kinds of devices will we get to the point where devices will take place or be able to replace lost hearing or lost vision. I think that's right. I think we will. Well, uh, vision. Uh, yes. Again, it's the interface that's an issue, right? How do you how do you make that? Now, the hearing, they I think they made some reasonable progress because the the cochlea, the the bones, that sort of thing, are well understood, and getting that conversion from that to microphones and stuff is is something a little bit easier, I think, than the visual system mm-hmm. tying into the V1 part of our brain. You've worked a lot of years in Silicon Valley. And those of us who have never been to Silicon Valley and only know it from TV and movies have a very, I think, dystopian view of it in in that it always seems like this almost hedonistic place with super brainy people doing amazing things, but no sense of reality. (laughs) Okay. So what is it really like? Well, the early days, I could tell you, was something like that TV show, Halt and Catch Catch Fire. There was this feeling of lots and lots of possibilities and enormous competition. There's a lot of people sitting in cubicles working like crazy, working 90, 100 hour a week and working crazy hours because this is a um, a freewheeling kind of world where lots of people can imagine making their fortune. They try something and many times it fails. Uh, Someone described Silicon Valley as a big pot continuously on boil, okay? Because there's so much churn of technology. And if there's two companies competing in one small space and one of them gets ahead of the other one, the other one that's not so good, it fails, it falls, it, 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 it goes bankrupt, closes down, you know, they run out of money and, and all the best people cross the street to the first company. <laughs> Literally, people change, can change jobs like that overnight. But again, it's a very, it's a very Darwinian system. Uh, you just have to be willing to work really hard and really smart to stay in it. 
Is everybody just vying for the big payoff at the end, or are there people who are just really committed to that next great thing? It's both. It's the payoff together with the fact that there's a, there can be a belief that, that you're really changing the world in good ways. And of course, we know that with uh, changing in good ways, there's lots of unintended consequences, and there's lots of things that are not, that are not quite so uh, good about it. That comes with it. So, so I don't know if that answered your question about Silicon Valley, but it's, yeah, but let's not forget that there's an enormous number of people working a long, long hours and there's lots of failure. That's why I mentioned that TV show. There's a lot of failure. Someone asked me, what do I attribute my success to? And I often say uh, lots of at-bats. It seems to be a place with a lot of serial entrepreneurship. It's like, if you fail at one thing, just go ahead and start something new. That, that maybe sounds a little too cavalier because I think each of those failures are times when people really, really, really think they're going to make it. Then they put mm. their heart into it and then they have to pick themselves up again and, and decide if they're going to do another one or they're just going to retire to the farm, right? Uh, yeah, retire without any money most right. of the time because right. you know they, they haven't got. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of work, but you could, if you can start to get into these and then because again, it's technology building on technology, the miniaturized chips lead to things in bioscience where we, we, we thought back around 1998, I think I get the number of years about right, that it was going to be another decade before we sequenced the human genome and boom, it was done in a couple of years. <laughs> so Technologies, the layer on top technologies open new possibilities, and that's what's so exciting about it. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 